0: I'm really excited to reintroduce Tim Clark. Tim Clark is the founder and CEO of Leader Factor, a training, consulting, coaching, and assessment organization that focuses on leadership development, organizational change, strategic agility, psychological safety, and emotional intelligence. He is the developer of the EQometer, assessment, and the four stages of psychological training safety program. Tim earned a doctorate in social science from Oxford University, is a former two time CEO and first team academic, all-American football player at BYU. Wow, there is a range of capabilities. Tim is the author of five books and more than 130 articles on various aspects of leadership and performance. This is part two of a part three conversation with Tim, and let's rejoin our conversation. In your book, and I think one of the premises of your book, Tim, is that you break your view of psychological safety or the way that readers can understand it better into stages. And I'm a kind of a newbie in the world of psychological safety and bravery. I'm a student of the topic. I love the topic. I've experienced it throughout my corporate career, uh, not not being psychologically safe as opposed to being psychologically safe. Uh, But, you know, this idea of stages, I think is a newer concept. And I'd love to have you share with our listeners a little bit about how you came about the idea of taking this kind of broad or ambiguous view of psychological safety and breaking it into stages.
1: Sure. So wh- when I began my research into psychological safety, I, we, we realized pretty quickly that it's not a binary proposition. It's not something that you have or don't have. It's a matter of degree. But I kept looking at it and, and asking the question, well, wait a second, there's got to be some pattern here. And so I began doing uh, survey research and also qualitative research in terms of observation and interviews, and this is when the stages became to or, or started to come into into sharper relief. And what we realize is that if, if psychological safety means that you can interact in a social setting without negative consequences, what I what I was able to discover is that there really is a stage-based pattern to this. All forms of interpersonal risk-taking are not created equal. So for example, uh, one of the first questions that I asked is, if, if people go into a social setting, what's the first thing they're worried about? And I observed this, I interviewed people, and then I did survey research. And what what I found is that the first thing that most people are concerned about when they go into a social setting is whether they are accepted, whether they are included, whether they can gain a sense of belonging. That was number one. And it was an undeniable, unmistakable pattern. And therefore that helped me understand that the first stage of psychological safety is what, what I call inclusion safety because it satisfies the first basic human need, which is I want to belong. I want to be accepted. I want to be included. So that's the foundation. And if you don't get that, you don't pass go. You you don't, you don't move on. So that was stage one. And then I asked the question, well, what comes next? And through, through the research, I discovered that the next stage is what I call learner safety, which means that you can engage in the learning process. You can ask questions you can give and receive feedback, you can experiment, you can make mistakes, and you're not going to be embarrassed or marginalized or punished for doing that. So that, that, that became stage two. And then again, I asked the question, okay, well, what, what comes after that? And again, the research revealed that after people learn, the natural instinct is they want to go use and apply what they have learned because they want to contribute and they want to make a difference. And so, stage one, I label as contributor safety. And that means the ability to go out, use your skills, abilities, knowledge, experience, contribute and make a difference. And again, you're free and able to do that without fear of negative or adverse consequences. Then finally, the culminating stage, uh, I realized through the research, the data was very clear on this. The culminating stage, stage four, is challenger safety, the ability to challenge the status quo without jeopardizing your standing or reputation. And this is the hardest one. This is, it requires the highest level of psychological safety because your personal exposure, and sense of vulnerability are also uh, at, at the peak. And so you need uh, an environment that will protect you in challenging the status quo that offers a tolerance for candor. And that's not easy to do. And as a matter of fact, you might find this interesting, Ed. So um, based on our four stages, team survey, we're, we're building our global database right now. And only 7% of teams are able to show a, a strong level of challenger safety at stage four. That's how difficult it is. I'm
0: not surprised. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not surprised. When I think about bravery in the workplace, and this is just my own interpretation of your work, Tim, and my own, and applying it to my own experiences, learner safety, where I don't feel embarrassed, marginalized, or punished is a place requiring significant bravery because I think most people in absence of psychological safety do feel a fear of being embarrassed, marginalized, and punished. And that's why they don't say what they need to say or do what they need to do because they're worried that it's all already been talked about or it's gonna sound stupid or it's affecting the timing of the agenda, right? They create all of these obstacles. Afterwards, of course, they say, gosh, I should have said something or why didn't I say something? But in the moment, a lap, an absence of bravery or a fear of being embarrassed or marginalized kicks in. And then of course, the flip side of that to me is challenger safety, which is now saying something that needs to be said or doing something that needs to be done uh, when you talked about earlier that it starts with me becomes incredibly difficult to do. And I'd like to talk about each of those stages in a little bit more detail, Tim, if we can. Uh, but I I first would love to, for you to share with our listeners, you know, how do you define psychological safety? We're talking about this term that we know what it means, but you know, many of our listeners for them, it might be a newer term or a term they've heard of lightly, but haven't really heard a, a definition of. So how, how do you, define psychological safety
1: the way that i define it in the most basic terms ed it means that it's not expensive to be yourself and so think about that and and hopefully the listeners will think about that When, when i mean expensive i mean socially or emotionally or politically or economically expensive to interact and be yourself if it is right? And we've all experienced this. If it is expensive, what happens? Most people change their behavior and they're not able to contribute and, and they're not able to do the things that they would like to do to to belong, to learn, to contribute, or to challenge. And so that those conditions inhibit their ability to be themselves and to contribute uh, and make the contribution that they're capable of making.
0: Yeah, I think of it a little bit like, and putting my corporate hat back on, people love free stuff. So anytime we had a meeting where we had free food, the likelihood of people showing up was greater than if we weren't right. having free food, yeah. or if you had to pay 5 or $10, or even $2, right? It, it, it wasn't minimal. But you know, this idea of me being who I am and who I feel that I need to be and to say what I need to say shouldn't be expensive I should be able to just say it and not to use your terms not feel embarrassed or marginalized or even worse punished which requires somebody else to do it for being me and to your you know description and for our listeners you know that's the goal of psychological safety is to as a leader create a group or as a participant influence a group to ensure that it's free for people to be who they are in order to have a positive impact on the group.
1: Yeah. So let, let me, I'll just say another word on that. So if you watch people and, and, and hopefully your listeners will do this the next time you go into a social setting or perhaps it's a virtual setting right now, which is fine. It it doesn't matter. It's still a social setting. Watch people very closely the very first thing that people do when they come together in a social setting is that they, they engage in what we call threat detection. They're trying to understand if the social environment is safe or unsafe. That is the natural human process of threat detection. If they come to the conclusion that it's safe, then they will offer a performance response, which means they're going to engage, they're going to weigh in, They're going to contribute usually the best that they can. If, on the other hand, they come to the conclusion that it's an unsafe environment, watch what happens. They won't offer a performance response. They will offer instead what I call a survival response. A survival response is very different. A survival response means that you've been thrust into a defensive mode of performance. You're not playing offense anymore. You're playing defense, you're managing personal risk, you're trying to avoid personal loss. It's all, it's about self-preservation. Well, think about the performance of a team that is in this defensive mode of performance rather than an offensive mode of performance. Your productivity goes way down. Your ability to both execute and innovate isn't nearly what it could be. If you are in this, if you are flourishing in this environment of psychological safety. So just watch people the next time you come together and watch the way they do threat detection, because there's one question in their minds and it's subconscious, right? We all engage in this in a subconscious way. If I engage in an act of vulnerability, will that act of vulnerability be rewarded or punished? that's what I want to know. And so I will observe until I come to a conclusion. And when I say act of vulnerability, there are many acts of vulnerability. It could be as simple as asking a question or giving a little bit of feedback, right? Very little things. These are all acts of vulnerability. And all humans, we want to know, are those acts of vulnerability rewarded or punished? So pay attention to those patterns, and I think you'll be fascinated at what you find.
0: There is a YouTube video that you have crafted that talks about your book and many of the aspects of the concept you're sharing that we'll also publish with the podcast when we uh, broadcast it. And one of the things you talk about is rewarded or punished vulnerability. I mean, what does it look like? So, you know, how do I know? that somebody's getting rewarded for being vulnerable, and you know what does a punished behavior look like?
1: Well, it ranges from very subtle forms of punishment to very overt forms of punishment. For example, Ed, we could say so uh, if you could make a comment, right? And the comment is an act of vulnerability, and then your way of punishing me, Ed, could be simply by say we're say we're in a team meeting, right? You're, you're, the way you punish me is you simply ignore it. You don't respond to it. So that's pretty subtle, but it's not lost on me. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a pretty clear signal. Or there are lots of nonverbal cues. Uh, you may not look me in the eyes. You may roll your eyes. You may not face me. you may There are all kinds of things that we do both verbally and non-verbally, to reward or punish those acts of vulnerability. And as I said, some are very mild and subtle, and others are, are pretty obvious and pretty overt. However,
0: the impact is significant, because if I see a reaction to something that somebody just said that was vulnerable, that was a punishment, I'm not going to say something <laughs> That's, right. that's, that's you know vulnerable, because I don't want to be treated that way. So it, you're, it's subtle, but you're influencing the behaviors of others significantly that could have a negative impact on why you're even together to meet.
1: That's very true. And, and to top it off, Ed, what's so fascinating is that studies, there's a mounting body of research that now shows, these are, these are uh, neuro, neuroscience studies, and neurological studies that show that the brain processes social rejection the same way it processes physical pain. Now you got to think about that for a minute. So, so it's devastating to most people when they're socially rejected in one way or another. It's that, it's, it's that significant. And yet a lot of times we act as if, Oh, it's no big deal. Well, it's a huge deal. Uh, so if an act of vulnerability is punished, uh, people are really paying attention to that. And they're going to be very careful about what they do because it's a painful experience. And often it's one that we, we remember for a long time.
0: Well, and as I work with leaders, I share with them, share with them, never underestimate what people observe and see, because all it takes is one person to come to a conclusion that they, that somebody else would just punish for being vulnerable. And, you know, at the water cooler, that's all they're talking about is how Ed treated Tim at the meeting was terrible, right? Even though it happened only for a second, and even though it was subtle, at least one person noticed it and influenced them, you know, in uh, very negative ways.
1: You know, what's interesting Ed about that is, um, for example, when, when I do corporate workshops and I'll ask people, so Uh, Can you remember a time when you engaged in some small act of vulnerability and it was punished? Everybody, everybody can remember several times that that, because they're sticky, Mm -hmm. right? They stick Mm -hmm. in our memories. They have that sticky, memorable quality and everyone can remember and they, and and, and I can't tell you how many people say, I still feel the pain from that experience. Isn't that incredible? And sometimes years later.
0: Yeah. Well, most of us, and I'm not sure why, but we tend to remember negative events better than positive events because we assume positive events are going to happen. So we don't remember them, but the negative events, which we don't anticipate, we remember and. You know, even as we're sitting here thinking about it, I'm remembering activities that I still talk about today, 12 years after leaving corporate, that were negative, that had a very negative influence on me, either as a contributor or as a team member. We're going to pause in our conversation with Tim Clark and ask that you join us next week as we hear part three of our conversation with Tim and the impact the psychological safety has on bravery in the workplace. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week, and we hope you join us next week as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on CastBox, Overcast, Apple, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google, Spotify, Pandora. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963, or visit them for more information at CabotRisk.com. Do you have something to say yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.